Asia Tech Podcast. Voice of the Asian Tech Ecosystem. Hi, this is Michael Wades from Asia Tech Podcast Stories. I'm talking to Tibetat Shinavasan, the general partner and co-founder of the Venture Reality Fund. I think there's a little bit of irony in the venture reality and virtual reality. I like the VR play on words. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you very much. How are you? Yes, uh, we, we knew that there were going to be many funds that were focused on the VR and AR space, but we wanted to be the VR fund. <laughs> exactly. And there's a little bit of fun in there too, right? I mean, you can't get that serious about life in some respects. And I think that that's actually quite, quite humorous. So I like that aspect of it as well. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, it's, it's funny too, because a lot of people are like, oh, it's the VR fund. They think it's the virtual reality fund, but you're right. It's the venture reality fund because we invest in all the realities, whether they're virtual, augmented, mixed or extended. Yeah, I like it a lot. <laughs> so can we back up a little bit? Where are you from originally? So, um, I was born in Bangkok, Thailand. Awesome. But then I came to the U.S. when I was two. Oh, wow. And so I pretty much, you know, grown and raised in America. Uh, went to, uh, so I grew up in Southern California. Then I went to Northern California for school, kind of stayed in the Bay Area, Silicon Valley. And that's really how I got involved and excited about tech. And I spent my whole career really pretty much in tech in the startup scene. Uh, primarily as an entrepreneur, uh, or primarily actually working at startups, uh, then eventually embarking on my own, um, founding my own startup. And then actually what happened was I backed the Oculus DK1 on the Kickstarter. Oh. I received that kit and was so blown away. Like VR was always something that I'd always dreamed about, you know, read about as a kid and you know, watched the movies like the Lawnmower Man and the Matrix. And I, I as a gamer, you know, the, the, the Visual fidelity of computer graphics had evolved so much, but I was always wondering, like, what about the headsets? How come they never got better? Right, right. And then Oculus was like, oh no, hey, you know, it's, it's, VR is going to be here and it's going to be available at a price point that makes sense. You know, I was like, okay, I, I'll, I'll take a gamble, especially with John Carmack backing it. I mean, whatever right. he says, I will, I will definitely pay attention to. Right. And so sure enough, I one and I tried it. And it was amazing. Asia Tech Podcast. Find out more at atp.show. It, you know, it really just showed like, yes, that VR, the thing that we dreamed about was finally possible uh, and possible for the masses. And what was interesting was, you know, they followed it up with the DK2, which was even better. Yeah. It, like it, it was beyond my expectations what VR could be. Um, and it, it, it was just so exciting. And I immediately started thinking, okay, what could I build in VR? As so, my background, I come from actually doing uh, UX design, art, that. and programming. Right. And so, uh, you know, my skill set really is prototyper with new technologies, just playing around, experimenting, and I started just building rough sketches of ideas and, and implementing them in VR, trying them out and seeing what was interesting. And I happened to be uh, working with some friends of mine, Eric Baer, who's a, an amazing 3D artist. And we both love the movie, The Matrix. And we're like, okay, and you can go, why wouldn't you want to go to The Matrix? And instead of like watching Neo, you could be Neo. You would meet Morpheus and you could dodge bullets and you can jump across the buildings and <laughs> you know try, try to do all these things. And so, I mean, yeah, it was very simple. It was a nights and weekends project, nothing fancy, uh, you know, built it in our spare time, trying to recreate all these different scenes. And what was really interesting was after building the jump program part where, you know, you start on a rooftop, you run, you jump, and then you fall like 40 stories and then you bounce off the pavement, right? That's what happens in the movie. So we try to recreate that experience in, in the VR demo. Right. I programmed that piece and I accidentally cured myself of my real life fear of heights. Yeah. Can you tell me about that? I was reading that as well. And I thought that's really interesting. So I want to give you a little bit of background too, right? I think it's, sure. it, it feels to me like you and I probably crossed our lives on a plane. Um, okay. I've lived, I've lived in Asia for the past 30 years and, oh, wow. I, and I actually live in Bangkok. So I thought that, I thought that was actually kind of funny, but I didn't realize that I was afraid of heights until I went to Cambodia and I was climbing up Angkor Wat and I stood on top of these stairs that I'd climbed up that had no handrails on them and were really steep. And I looked down and I thought, Oh my God, I can't get down. Mm. I cannot walk down these stairs because it's just too, it's too steep and I'm too afraid of this heights. And I'd never had that feeling before. So when I was reading a little bit about your experience, I thought, how did the virtual reality experience that you had sort of cure you of that feeling? Cause that's powerful. And that leads into other questions, I think as well. Yeah. 
Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So it was really interesting because it wasn't something I was planning on doing, right? Like right, I, I right. didn't think, okay, I'm building this. To, I was just like, hey, how can I build a fun experience? And, you know, when, when you start with that experience, it's like, you know, just very simple temp art. It's it's not scary. It's not realistic. And you're just trying to create this like feeling of excitement. And eventually, of course, the visual fidelity starts getting better when you put in final art and you start tweaking the parameters to feel uh, more um I wouldn't say realistic, but like more right. And what ends up happening is I, I think I just gone through the experience so many times and it was a almost like immersion therapy where I did this wow. jump that would have been the most scariest thing in my experience and I survived it. <laughs> and so by doing it over and over, I hacked my brain into thinking, okay, maybe it won't be so bad. <laughs> maybe, maybe, maybe this is doable. And, and, and it's not like, I, you know, I'm completely fearless now. I, I mean, you know, there's still things that trigger a sense of, you know, fear of heights, but I'm so much more improved from where I was before. Like before it was so bad, I would, you know, be in a glass elevator and I would look the, like at the door because I didn't yeah. want to look out. Right. Yeah, and, but door. now it's like, you know, I can totally look over these vantage views. And what was funny was I discovered this when I was on vacation in Hawaii. I didn't realize I was, I was cured of mushroom rides, but what happened was I, was I was on a balcony. I overlooked it. And I was like, wow, this used to scare me. And I asked my brother, I was like, is this not high enough? And my brother, who's always been as scared of heights as me, is like, no, no, that's that's <laughs> high enough to make me scared, man. That's I don't know. Scary. Have you and ever... so then go ahead, go ahead. I, 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 I went and I, I went ziplining to test it, to test wow. to see how, and it was, you know, it was amazing. I, not only was I not scared, but I really could enjoy and appreciate these amazing views and vantages over like these like, you know, 500 foot drops that were just, uh, before would have just been unthinkable. So yeah, wow. uh, yeah it, 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 and that really opened my eyes where I was like, okay, TV, film, and video games, you know, traditional media have triggered a fear of heights, but that VR could go that next step and cure me of my fear of heights. I felt like not only, you know, is VR just cool and fun, but it's powerful. Uh, and that immersiveness uh, is something that we've never had before. And that could impact not just the way we play, but the way that we learn, the way that we communicate, the way that we work. And, and that there's just so many opportunities. And that's when I really decided I didn't want to just be a developer making cool VR games, but, you know, hopefully I could impact the industry in a more meaningful way and really had the lucky opportunity to become a VC and invest and advise VR AR startups. So how has that been going? I mean, you were pretty famous actually at the end of 2016 and the beginning of 2017 for publishing both of your infographics. I mean, obviously more well-known for other things as well, right? But it was a really great graphic picture of what the landscape looked like a year ago. And I'm really wondering, now that you've been involved in this, you've been making investments, you've been doing that, what's changed in the past year? And what have you seen, again, that's really blown your mind? I mean, there are a couple of things. One is just this idea that it's out there now. And, you know, there was definitely a lot of talk about the initial adoption of VR being slower and how that was very disappointing and this trough of disillusionment, gap of disappointment, whatever. But the fact was the genie was out of the bottle. More people now were experiencing VR than ever in the history of mankind. And it's great VR too, like with the HTC Vive or the Oculus or even the PS uh, VR, you know, these are life changing experiences people are going through sometimes when they try VR for the first time. And that's, what's really cool. It's, it's interesting because, you know, I remember even two years ago, three years ago, giving demos to people, talking to them about, Oh, Hey, you know, this is VR, try it. And now I'm at these conferences and I meet these people at VR startups and they're like, Hey, tip that you gave me my first VR demo three years ago and now I'm working in the industry and you're like, whoa, no, that's doing amazing. It. No, building it. Yeah. Yes. And, 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 you know, and these are people that not just owning headsets, but actually, you know, trying to build livelihoods in, in this industry. And that's amazing. Like the fact that VR as an industry and you know, AR exists it, to me still like is something that I wouldn't have believed was possible even like, you know, five, six years ago. And so to see the, the, the beginnings of that is amazing. And Can you talk a little bit about Magic Leap? And I only ask about it because there's been so much press about it and yet so much mystery. And I think it was back in December that Wired Magazine came out with sort of an inside look about what they were doing, their new product, and how it's different, right? So the mathematics, obviously, and the the way they're using light 
right? So Lightspeed Technology mm-hmm. and all the stuff that they're doing. I'm just wondering if you've if you have any more information about that or if you have a view on what they're doing that may be slightly different than what the rest of the industry is doing, if at all. Sure. I mean, you know, I, I talked to a lot of other colleagues in the space, both that have seen Magic Leap, but, you know, both other than a lot like myself who have mm-hmm. actually never tried Magic Leap. Right. Um, you know, I think, you know, there's a lot of concern. Is it vaporware? Is it going to be a flop? You know, are, are, you know, there's uh, having raised that much money, um, they, and acting as secretive as they have, they've kind of built up a little bit of overhype. And it's yeah. going to be hard for anyone to live up to that kind of hype. But at the same time, you know, I think I really applaud them for the audacious goal that they're going for. You know, you have to swing for the fences. You got to go all out and try to do something that you believe is going to be groundbreaking and, you know, hopefully change the game or change the world. And I think, you know, the, the couple of things that really, I would say, concern me about Magic Leap is yeah. that, you know, their developer outreach. I, th- I think this is the one thing that Oculus has done so well that HTC and Vive, Sony, you know, others, Google, um, when you're building any kind of technology, any kind of platform, you have to get developers excited and involved. Yes. And it's one of those things where, you know, I, I can understand, you know, working with a select few at first, but if, if your product is looking to launch, any, you know, anywhere within, six months to a year, you should pretty much have a very strong developer outreach program and talking to the best devs, you know, all around the world and really just figuring out what that first great content will be for your platform. And, you know, Magic Leap has historically had a tough time. I mean, partially because they didn't know when a developer kit was going to be ready, but, you know, the fact that it's, it's been pretty, you know, hard for developers to interact with, and the development community at large to interact with Magic Leap, I think that's a little troublesome. Yeah. Uh, you know, I, I still think it's something they could fix, but you know, I, I think from my understanding of where things are, that to me is one of the biggest concerns. Now, I think also too, people have to come in and, and realize that the hype and the expectations, you know, they're expecting some crazy magical device, but if you read the hands-on at Wired and, and some other people published, you know, right. uh, I think that, that did a good job of actually like you know, bringing down the expectations where they're like, okay, it's it's similar to HoloLens, which most people still haven't experienced and is still a pretty impressive experience for the for mm. a lot of the uninitiated. Uh, but I would say definitely let's, you know, <laughs> hold our expectations and let's focus on what is going to be the thing that draws people back that adds the meaningful value for our, for, for people's lives. Like, I think that's the thing that VR and AR still needs to solve. The right. thing that, that, you know, we are looking for as investors, we're like, Hey, how does VR and AR become something that's a part of our everyday lives? Mainstream. That, yes. And, you know, I, I don't necessarily like, you know, I think most people are like, oh, mainstreaming, it means, you know, a hundred million install base or something. It's like, no, no, no. Let's, let's even start at the more simpler, like before we even get there, at least something where a large enough group of people find this valuable to use frequently and hopefully like every day and make it an everyday part of their lives. Yeah. So I have a view on this as well, actually. And I, I take a look at this from an investor perspective as well. So I invest in companies okay. in Southeast Asia and I've been doing that since like 19, 19- 98 in all of Asia, right? So 1999 actually. Right. So I've been, I've been at this for a while. And okay. this concept you mentioned of sort of developer outreach and developer engagement, you know, Microsoft was always really good at that back in the day. And that was one of the reasons why their platform was so strong. Um, and this whole concept of being in stealth, mm-hmm. I, ju- I just find anathema to the entire development of any ecosystem. Again, it's just my opinion. I'm curious what you think about this. And the reason why is because you know, in very, in a very tried sense, you know, ideas are kind of a dime a dozen. You really have to be confident that you can out execute somebody. And I know that if you talk to the team at Magic Leap and read what they say, they feel like they're doing something that's, you know, while everybody is making a right hand turn, they're making a left hand turn. And I think the jury is still out on that, as you mentioned. But the idea for me is you want to have as many people involved. Oculus did a great job with this of getting other people who weren't even involved in the product of being ambassadors and kind of pre-selling the product for them. And once you lose that engagement, I think it's, you said it may be possible to fail. I don't know. I think it's really hard to get back coming out of stealth and having nobody out there supporting you. Just Mm -hmm. from an investor standpoint, I look at that. It's always a red flag to me when people want to keep what they're doing so secret because 
I don't know. What, what do you think about that? Yeah, no, I, I mean, it, it depends too on what you're trying to build. Are you trying to build a product or a platform? I mean, you could say, like, you know, like console makers like Nintendo is very, very big on the stealth thing. And, you know, they work with a select handful of people versus someone like, you know, like Apple or Microsoft that really feels like, okay, no, no, they have to develop a huge ecosystem and, and really explore it. Yeah, you know, it just depends on, again, what the model is and what, what the overall picture, but as investors, you know, of course we, pre- we prefer platforms over products, right? Yeah. So I, and that's my big thing. I always prefer a platform over product because this was the other question I was going to ask you. From an investor standpoint, right, as a as a venture capitalist, I always say that I have a difficult time determining which vertical product is going to win because there are just too many of them and it's hard to differentiate. But I kind of get a better sense of which platform. I think it's easier, not easy in any sense of the word. I think it's easier to try to determine which platform is going to be the winner and it's easier to bet on them too, because the likelihood that they're going to be 75 platforms is low, but the likelihood that there'll be three is probably pretty high. So I'm just wondering when you're going out to invest in companies in VR, AR, mixed reality and enhanced reality, I think you said as well, like, what are you, what are you really looking for when you're going to do that? I can give you my view, but I'm curious on yours as well. Sure. I mean, it's, it's always tricky too, like, regardless of VR, AR, you know, there's always that question of, uh, you know, product or platform and, you know, the, right. the stereotypical things that everyone's looking for a platform. And so a lot of people pitch products, but as pitch platforms. them as platforms, even yeah. though they're products, right? But yeah, yeah it's, it's a weird, it's a weird issue. You know, I, I think also a lot of times, I mean, you have to have a good product before you can make a platform, yeah, right? Yeah. So it's like one kind of comes part and parcel with the other. Um, so, you know, I, I think it's like, what, what I like to see is a strong product definition with platform potential. Yeah, same here. So that, we, that makes sense. We, I mean, that's yeah. a little bit of hedging, <laughs> but not really. Cause when we, when we built some stuff out here, we did the same thing. We'll, we'd build a platform, but we'd also build the first vertical to plug into that platform to make sure that built, first of all, connecting a vertical into the platform was actually easy enough that the, all the APIs worked and that the platform itself was actually viable. But second of all, that if somebody wanted to build a vertical to then plug into that platform, that it was easy enough for them to do as well, right? Because if that's not the case, then what's the point? Yeah, yeah. But I, I would say, though, though, but just unwinding, I think even more essential than the product or platform is, are you building something that people value, right? Like, I feel like sometimes yes, yes, people yes. lose that basic course, thing. And course, it's like, and what's interesting is like in VR and AR in particular, it has to be so, because we're in the, you know, early adoption, like we're in the mainstreaming, uh, phase. It's not mainstream yet. So the opportunities are different when a product is, or when a platform is mainstream versus when it's in this early adoption or growth stage or potential growth stage. And and what I mean by that is saying, okay, if someone's developing VR or AR, or let's just stick with VR, someone's uh, creating VR software, that has to be valuable, not just in terms of like for the end consumer, the cost is not just how much does the software cost. It's how much does the hardware plus the software cost? Right, right. All right. So you can't be thinking, okay, am I going to give this, am I be built, will I be building, you know, $30, $50 of value or something? No, it's like, no, you have to create like $3,000 of value at least <laughs> for the consumer, right? Because to justify the hardware and the software and, and everything else, right? Although I guess now with VR becoming much less expensive, you know, okay. A thousand, a hundred dollars worth of value. But th- th- that's the kind of thinking I feel like is lost on a lot of people coming from, you know, the idea of, oh, mobile apps. Hey, let's just charge a couple dollars and, you know, just try to get the millions of consumers or, hey, let's just make it free and go for the, uh, you know, eyeballs and the ad revenue because VR is not at that scale. None of those no. opportunities exist. You have to no. go back to the fundamentals, right? So what, are, and, what, go ahead. Sorry, sorry go ahead. And I was just saying to like the one thing, that I've really been focused on lately is this idea of yeah you know, you know, how are we going to drive mass adoption and w- one of the big things I think about is not just is what drove mass adoption for desktop computing because I feel like VR isn't just like a mobile uh, you know smartphone right it's so different from anything else that came before it it's more like going back to how desktop computing disrupted our lives and desktop computing was not Gaming was not the first, or, or entertainment was not the, the driver that took it mainstream. It was really enterprise work. It was really this idea of saying, hey, you know what? Uh, I need Microsoft Office or, you know, uh, Lotus so, 1, 2, 3, by like, the way, was really what Lotus 1, 2, 3, exactly, right? <laughs> to be fair. I, I need access to that at home. 
And so I need a desktop at home. And then because of that, then, you know, people had access to it. Then you could start building the rest of the ecosystem out, right? But you need that tip of the spear thing. And I think that enterprise is the right way to think about it. But one thing I've been struggling with or, or that I've been thinking about over the past, you know, two years now uh, is that most of the people, when they pitch me a, a VR enterprise application, they're saying, okay, let's take an IT worker that's already, you know, super efficient and try to make them more efficient. Let's try to get the, you know, PC user, the billion people in, v, in using PCs for productivity to add VR as part of their, you know, day-to-day life. Right. The problem with that, I think, is that you're taking IT worker that's already very efficient. Someone, let's say they're 80% efficient, and then you might make them 85% efficient. And that's not as big of a win as saying, hey, what if we can go to the non-IT worker, right? the blue-collar worker, the worker that you know doesn't want to sit at a cubicle and look – is not an abstract thinker, so doesn't want to look at a wall of text or a wall of, of numbers and type, right? They're visual thinkers. They're spatial thinkers. They like to work with their hands. What if VR and AR could be the interface to allow them to do meaningful work and participate in the digital IT economy? I think that's a huge problem. Huge opportunity to say, let's go from 0% productivity to even 30 to 50% productivity. Right. That would be a huge open uh, of uh, opportunities uh, that, you know, again, in the U.S., we face this problem all the time where we're like, okay, a lot of these uh, blue collar workers are disappearing because they're being, you know, shipped overseas or being automated. And so, you know, there's this effort to say, hey, let's retrain these people to code. But the problem is, a lot, I think a lot of times there are people that just don't like to do traditional IT jobs because they're not abstract thinkers in that way. But if right. VR and AR can make the abstract concrete in a way that's more understanding, I think that's super powerful. And then that could let the 4 billion people that don't use a PC for productivity to now use VR for productivity and would be a much bigger market. Yeah, so drill down. I mean, it's an interesting concept for me. Drill, drill down a little bit. Can you give sure. me an example, like in your mind, what type of worker that would be? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, okay, so I'll, I'll give you one kind of, and, and you know, part of this comes too because I, I study a lot of. Okay, what is daily use VR right now? Like, yeah. what are some of the most engaged and used applications? It's actually the art programs in VR. Okay, go ahead. So what's really ahead. interesting? I don't know if you. I don't know if you ever got to try Tilt, uh, let's Tilt, say, Tilt Brush, which was bought by Google, yep. or um, Oculus Medium. Amazing, so Tilt Brush right? was amazing. I used it on an HTC Vive, and it, right, that's Excellent. and I painted inside around myself. It was insane. Yes, actually. yes. And, and, and so, I mean, it, it's definitely it's an amazing demo. But what's interesting is, is in the year or two that has been out now, see what people have been doing with it. People are, you know, making amazing artwork, but are also, you know, doing architectural designs, doing interior design, like production product design all these different applications where what's interesting about it too is there are a lot of analog artists out there people that are painters and sculptors that don't do digital art because they don't want to use a mouse right 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 and to look at a monitor like for them that's not what art is but now a lot of them are embracing vr because it lets them work naturally intuitively and it also lets them create art that was never possible before yeah. But what in the, uh, in the end, what are they doing? They're participating in the digital ecosystem. So, so you, if we can turn an yeah, analog painter there. into yes. a digital artist, right? It's a digital like, artist. That's a big deal, right? So kind of what Apple did at the original with like, um, was it Aldous Page Maker or layout, you know, page layouts and stuff, right? Yeah. So you took people yeah. that were laying out magazines and newspapers and stuff and you gave them the ability to do that digitally. It just changed the whole design you know, it changed advertising, it changed publishing, it changed all of that stuff, right? So that was a big deal. I, I think, and again, I love the give and take of ideas, right? <clears throat> but if I go back and look at how the internet started, right? And, you know, I'm not going to talk about day one, but, you know, there was ARPANET and then there was the connectivity between universities and you had, you know, PhD students and candidates and professors sharing information over the internet. It was all text, of course, right? But mm-hmm. all of that infrastructure, they shared this information, they figured it out, there were message boards. Again, all of it, text only on green screens, you know, green letters, black (laughs) screens and stuff. But then once that got built out and things happen faster today than they happened then, but once the universities and the education started benefiting from it, you know, then people started having ideas. This was a little bit faster. We could do 
X, Y, and Z. And I remember that mm-hmm. really well, actually, because I'm probably a little bit older than you are, but I remember that really, really well. And I'm thinking, and this is really based on a conversation that I had with Alvin, right? And that was, mm-hmm. you know, cause I was asking about medical technology and I was asking about him about gaming and stuff from an HTC perspective. And he said something to me that was really fascinating, right? In China, they're testing this immersive education, right? So separating students, you know, just real students at a young age into like the smart kids and the not so smart kids. And I'm paraphrasing, right? So I'm not putting words yep. in anybody's yep, yep. mouth. And he said, if you gave an immersive educational experience to kids who were considered not that smart, and then just gave the regular educational experience to kids that were considered super smart, that after a certain period of time, kind of like the way you felt with your fear of heights, that those kids were able to now understand what they were being taught because of the immersiveness as well as, if not better than the kids who were considered smart before they started this program. And I wonder if, cause I always think, right, if you, you know, if you give a five year old an iPad or an iPhone, you know, later when they get to be teenagers, they're so comfortable with technology that it seems, you know, you see this all the time, right? Do you see these like 15 year olds or six year olds like trying to turn the page of a magazine with their finger and it's not moving kind yeah. of thing, right? And I think that yeah. VR and AR may have the same possibilities. If you start on the education side, I'm curious what you think about that because you mentioned that too, right? Being able to educate people with that really immersive experience. And then I'll tell you why I think that even more. One of the things Mm -hmm. I learned, right, was that when I was in high school, I studied French. I loved the French language and I could speak French actually pretty well, but I never went to France, yeah? Okay. But I studied Japanese in college and then when I went to Japan, it was just like, boom, the ability to be, then be in the environment, right? That immersive experience made it so much easier to learn. And I think about that sometimes when I think about augmented reality and virtual reality, its ability to teach. I don't know. Mm-hmm. And I think that may be one of the ways to mainstream. I'm curious what you think. No, I mean, I, I definitely believe that uh, VR education is, VR can transform education so profoundly and that it could be a huge driver of VR and AR adoption. And I did listen to the, the podcast that you did with Alvin and it was great, by the way. I think it's great to you know sum up the findings and it repeats or it's very much in line with a lot of the other studies that we've seen in the U.S. historically as well. Uh, but the problem is as a VC, at least in the U.S., the ed tech space is so hard. It is so and that's it's so that's, hard to build a business out of. Yeah, that's and one of the, the challenges. Like, yeah, yeah. Like, uh, U, sorry, Udemy and Khan Academy. Look, sorry, go ahead. But I just thought about it in the context of those companies. But go ahead. The challenges are you're saying. Oh, but but like in the U.S., I mean, there's challenges of school budgets and, yeah, and yeah, yeah. figuring out, you know, like all the bureaucracy and you know, uh, it, it's it's tricky. I, I feel like there's two things. I mean, one you could look at. Okay, definitely. When we talk about computer adoption too, like when we look at laptop adoption, right? What made laptops mainstream was really when kids needed it for college, right? And right. laptops got to an affordable price point, and it was you know the rise of the internet and you know needing to have the computers, you know, portable computers in the classroom, right? And that's what you know broke the doors uh, off of that market. But at the same time, I, I feel like at least in the U.S., I think in China it is different, but. To start a company that's focused on that space, especially in, in the, you know, general education space, I think is very challenging and very difficult. But I think there are other ways to kind of take the same ideas and same principles and apply it in ways that could be ground change or breaking. Like it's, this is going to sound so sad and it's no, no. true, but I, so I talked to this one's company and they created coursework for STEM education. Uh, the founder teaches chemistry at universities, you know, brilliant PhD and uh, it was interesting because what they did was they did a test with a hundred students and, you know, very similar to, you know, Alvin's study, uh, they, they showed that they could get a full letter grade improvement from people that learned in VR versus right. people that didn't learn VR across, you know, all different types of demographics. I was like, that's amazing. Yeah. But the problem is no one values a huge course letter grade increase in chemistry. Like you can't put an R like a, a ROI like value on it as tangible. <laughs> Sorry, you know, like, I, I was thinking about what you said for a second, but yeah, fair enough because there's no money in that. Yeah. It's so terrible. It's it, it's that is terrible. Awful, but that is the truth of the world. But now the other side of that is okay. If you could also use those same teaching and methodology to say, hey, they got a ten percent increase in their SAT score or in their you know uh, 
GRE scores, then people would be shelling out a thousand to five thousand dollars per per <laughs> per headset and courseware, right? Because right. every middle class family is like, I will do anything, you know anything I can to improve those courses because it directly correlates to what school they're going to go to. So here's my idea. Okay. And I just, it's just, <laughs> no, but this just popped into my head and I was going to ask you this as, yeah. as well. Do you only invest in the United States? No, we invest globally. Okay. So here's We've the actually, thing, right? Yeah. So okay. there's a massive, and you, you know this, I know you know this, there's a massive desire for students, not just in Southeast Asia in particular, but in Asia in general, right? To get into university in the United States. Yep. Right. So if you're from the Philippines or you're from Vietnam or from somewhere, you know, even from Singapore and you get into Harvard or Stanford or MIT, like the, not only is it life changing, but the pride that your family has is insane. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I just wonder if there's a way, and I know there's a company out here that does something that tries to prepare high school students and below high school students to get ready to go to college, both in the U S and the, and, and London, basically. And they've yep. raised a ton of money, but they don't do anything in the VR space. And I'm wondering if there's a space to do that outside of the U.S. where the value of going from a B to an A or a, you know, a C plus to a B plus in chemistry is actually really important. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? So what's the difference you see for in, investing? And I guess in general, but also specifically in education outside the U.S. as opposed to inside, particularly in this space. Sure. I, I think you're right. Like, I mean, I, I think there are different types of opportunities and, you know, I, I know the government is funding a lot, of, you know, as much more, yeah. uh, especially in China is, is, is really, really embracing this idea of VR learning. Um, yeah. but what's interesting too is like, as you said this, the, the one thing I, 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 like, I think it's true. I, I think if you could create, and this goes back to what you're saying about language, right? Like, even if you could teach through uh, immersive learning, you can get people to speak better English that will help them phenomenally when they study overseas. Yeah. Right. Yeah. But, but at the same time, you know, like part, part of what the true promise of VR is that idea of, okay, no, no. What if the, you know, the education that you can get at Stanford is available anywhere, no matter right. where they are in the world. Yeah. I was going right? to like go, there. The I was go there next. Right. So you don't actually have to be <laughs> in California to do it. Yeah. Yes. And, and that, the idea too is that like, I mean, what if we can even do better than, you know, right. what they do at, at these schools, right? And, and, and really think about, okay, what, what's even the next generation of learning and thinking and how, how will VR and AR impact all of that and really unlock a new, different way? Right. To do so, all of these things. Right. So I think about this all the time, right? One of my friends in Bangkok is a professor at university here. Mm-hmm. Okay. And periodically she'll stand in front of a class in Bangkok, but also connect to, um, you know, other classrooms that are participating in that, in that course, which are in Konkan or Chiang Mai or, mm-hmm. you know, in Phuket or in Hat Yai or somewhere else in the country. But it's still just flat video mm-hmm. with a microphone. Mm-hmm on a television screen. And I just wonder mm-hmm. like how that would be different if it was super immersive as well. Yes. And whether it's, you know, language or organizational behavior, whatever it is that's being taught, how does that get impacted? I would just love to, I can't stop thinking about, I know how much education has changed my life. Right. And I just cannot stop thinking about those possibilities. Mm-hmm. Definitely. Definitely. But you know, I, I'd say even to like, when I meet companies that are, you know, focused on something like education, uh, sometimes, you know, I'll of course tell them all the horrors and the difficulties. But one thing I, I like to think about too is taking it one step back and saying, okay, well, what if, I mean, the idea of like teaching and communicating, you break that down and you're saying, okay, well, instead of focusing on training or teaching, uh, you know, students think about, okay, well, or, or like young children as students, oh, think about, okay, no, no, you have to train a workforce. And it's like the same principles yeah, apply, yeah, yeah. but now you're solving, a, you know, uh, tangible or, or, or a much more tangible money uh, or a problem that we can easily put a money uh, dollar amount around or bot amount around. One other way I would think about too is, is like even more fundamentally, right? Like this idea of communicating ideas or, you know, even how we create ideas, right? Like yeah. if we can use VR and AR to tackle those issues, right? Like, like for the longest time, one of the, things I was searching for for VR and AR in terms of mainstream driver applications was a PowerPoint killer. This idea that, yeah, we've been communicating ideas with 
standing in front of a wall of of text and pictures for you know as soon as thirty years the Windows PC was invented, right? Like, but we can do better. That is not the optimal way to present ideas and to communicate ideas. We can do better, and I think VR and AR can be the key point of that. Uh, and what's important too is that we present in VR and AR, but creating those presentations is as easy as playing with Legos, right? So it has to be very easy right. and tangible, like both on the creation and the consumption side. So I think that's a huge opportunity, but what's great about it is it, it affects not just business, but education, like everything, right? Like teachers use PowerPoint, right? Like, so if, if you want to get to the core of like, okay, how can you really, really, uh, you know, change schooling and, and the way things are taught? It's like, oh, well, if you fundamentally change the way teachers interact with students, that could be a huge thing. If we, if we make it much more experiential, ex, uh, you know, learning experience and not just a lecture experience, right? Like that's a huge, huge opportunity. Yeah. I also think, so last year I participated and gave a little speech at a virtual reality and augmented reality um, event in Singapore. And one oh, of nice. the comp- yeah, it was really interesting actually. And one of the companies that was um, presenting there was this training mechanism that they had for air- airplane engine maintenance. Now, again, that's a product, not a platform, but I just thought that that whole way of educating people about how to maintain an engine without the engine actually having to be there by letting people literally almost like the, um, you know, the, the, the art program that we were talking about earlier, where you actually physically feel like you're inside the artwork you're creating. In this case, you were physically inside the engine and you were able to sort of manipulate the pieces of the engine from the inside. You could really see what it was like and the experience again was really powerful. And I thought that yep. again from an educational, because airline maintenance is actually really important. And again, you can put a dollar value on that as well, right? Yes. Yeah. Yep. I, I think that's right. What, then what you do is you, you build it out with these high end proof, case, you know, proof cases, not mainstream yet, but then you come up with the, you know, uh, techniques and the terminology and, and kind of a, the blueprint of how this can work for other areas. And then you start applying it and reaching it out, right? Like that's, but I think you're right though. You got to find those valued use cases first. And go, okay, if I can solve for this, where else can I use apply this to? And you know, what other learnings can be done? Yeah, no, completely agree. And I just so and and we haven't talked about this at all. But just from my perspective, like I want to have an ongoing conversation about AR and VR. I think the market's moving so fast, and you know, we mm-hmm. can put ER and, and mixed reality in that as well. <laughs> I, think, I think the market's moving really fast. Um. I'm really curious what you see happening now that, you know, it's January 2018, right? And Mm -hmm. I presume you'll put a lot of money to work this year. I'm just wondering Mm -hmm. what you see happening. And I hate to talk about trends because I think it's a little bit of a bogus conversation, but I'm just curious what you see happening this year or what you're focusing on. Because, you know, the technology does move really quickly. So things will change. The experience is going to be more immersive. The technology is more powerful. The cost is going to be cheaper. So the all these things come together to be able to mainstream. But, like, what do you think is going to happen this year that didn't or couldn't have happened last year? Sure. So, I mean, we think about it a couple of ways. I think this conversation has been very much about a lot of that. It's shifting that idea of VR as a entertainment platform right. to VR as a productivity platform. Right. Yeah. Yeah. For sure. I think that's important. Uh, and I think, you know, one of the more interesting things that's happening is not just, you know, Microsoft, but Microsoft through all of their channel partners like HP, Lenovo, Acer, Asus, others uh, like Samsung, you know, <coughs> they're building an enterprise ready headset. And it's something that can easily get adopted by large companies. It has a great price point, really. You know, it's a good quality VR uh, experience. It just needs the software, the compelling software. And the one thing, you know, in terms of like trends and where we see the industry going, you know, last year there was 3 billion invested in VR and AR. Right. Previous year it was 2.3 billion. And what was right. funny was last year everyone was saying, oh, VR and AR is dead. dead. You know, <laughs> off of this disillusionment, blah, blah, blah. You know, investment's going to be down, but there's actually more. And we, we think it'll continue to increase, right? And, and what's great too is that investment's being diversified. That 2.3 billion, you know, I think what, a point lot of, eight it, of it was from Magic Leap. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And now, you know, there's still like, I think 0.4 of it was Magic Leap, but it wasn't that big of a chunk anymore, you know? And that's good. Uh, what's also, you know, for us, what's interesting too is, you know, the, the ecosystem, there is an ecosystem, and this kind of hits back to what I was talking about before, you know, there's, you know, 
we've doubled the numbers of head, uh, we've more than doubled the numbers of headsets since, you know, last year. And I think at the last count, there were over 30 titles that have made over a million dollars in revenue in, in VR, like, uh, software titles, like games. Right. And so what's interesting is, you know, that means there are companies that are not just sustainable, but even profitable in the VR space now. That's never existed before. And what's yeah. great is like, you know, it's now the investor's job, not necessarily to, invest in the or not that we wouldn't invest in those but it, we don't have to focus that much attention into those spaces because they can be bootstrap companies now and we can start focusing on some of these other things like the the uh, b2b or healthcare or even education right yeah I, I like to see because and again because these are easily more easily protected meaning more easily defensible i like to see deeper tech right so you know, you can have a movie, as you said. These these businesses can be self-sustainable. The software businesses around games can be self-sustainable. You know, Sony's been doing this for years, as has Nintendo. Not obviously in the VR space, but in the console and sort of gaming yep. space. Um, you know, EA is probably going to come out with a virtual reality game for Madden Football, where it feels like you're on the field and in the game. And that stuff I can see really happening, right? But what I really want to see is super experiential things where, you know, you take... So people that have, have lost like ALS, like, you know, people that have ALS patients, right? Or people that have medical patients that can't move and just be able to do kind of what you did with the fear of heights and just be able to give them an experience where it does feel like they're moving. It feels like even though they could never get to France or go to Siam Reap, that they can now do those things virtually. And it feels like almost better than being there, right? To be able mm-hmm. to give people that experience. Because one of the things that I see happening as the world gets smaller and smaller and, you know, technology starts connecting people globally, is that it also allows, and maybe this is just the optimist in me, right, is that if you know more about people that live in, I'm just going to pick a country, Afghanistan or Pakistan, because now you've been there virtually and you can see what their day-to-day lives are like, it's less likely for you to dislike them or misunderstand them as well. And I think there's a great power in being able to have that sort of human interconnectivity using VR and AR. And I'd like to see mm-hmm. that type of really deep tech get built as well, right? Not just for the travel fun experience, but sort of for the global expansion experience, if that makes sense. No, absolutely. Absolutely. And I, I wish for the similar thing. I mean, what, one of those ideas is, 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 you know, when you want to communicate with someone, you want to share your ideas, you want to share your perspective, you want them to see through your eyes and walk in your shoes, right? Like yeah, that's like, exactly. That's the dream. And VR literally makes that possible now. Exactly. Exactly. Right? So tele- telepresence so, is actually yeah. something we haven't spoken about at all. But VR – and I interrupted you again. I'm really sorry. But telepresence, no, no, no. telepresence gives you the ability to do that too where, you know, again, very simple things. But, you know, let's say you live in Southern California but your grandmother lives in, you know, in the Philippines. You can mm-hmm. now see her and it feels like you're there because once you improve – and we haven't talked about this at all, that the touch, the haptic, I have lack of terminology for this, but that experience as well, and you can make that virtual, you're changing the game for like what is actually reality and what's virtual reality, right? Yeah. And, and the thing is, too, I think sometimes we overthink this problem. Like, Yeah, agreed. I've given people a high fives in VR, and there was no haptic feedback, but it was so satisfying (laughs) and it it connected and it gave that connection and that closeness and and, and, you know yeah i think haptics could make it a better experience but the lack of haptics didn't destroy the experience it didn't make it meaningless and and it was much better than you know giving a high five emoticon right like so i feel like there's definitely you know this idea too of of you know in vr even in this crude stage the humanity that comes across from the avatars is so compelling. Really and I think that, that we're good. You know, and, and it's hard to explain when you, when you don't experience it in VR, but when you do, you know, like right away, I could tell a, a person's avatar, even though it didn't look like the person, but, but just by their posture and the way that their head nodded. Sure, sure, sure. You know, like, like those subtle cues I wouldn't have even thought of, but just come across. It's so interesting. But so to think that, you know, if we can put humanity back into some of the digital communication, I think that there's a lot of potential benefit from that as well. Yeah. Um, yeah. Look, when I was a kid, there was this whole fantasy of like a video telephone, right? Which we have today, Mm -hmm. obviously in multiple formats, you know, everywhere. Um, You can probably do it on an Apple watch, right? But 
one of the things that I do, because I talk to a lot of people on my platform, right, is that I've noticed that the conversations that I have face-to-face, where I can see sort of the crinkling in the eyes or the smirking of somebody or the slight frown of their face, face-to-face, right, gives me a mm-hmm. much different conversation and outcome. And I imagine, imagine if you and I both had headsets on right now. And we've yeah. never met, right? So we don't know each other. But if I could see your, I can feel your enthusiasm, right? I can feel your expressions, I think, right? And I feel like if I met you <laughs> later on, I would know you and feel familiar. But imagine how it would feel today if we had the headsets on and we could actually see each other in that sort of 3D tactile way. It would be amazing. Absolutely. And I mean, and this is the one thing too, where I think the big breakthrough for VR and communication isn't to say, you know, it's not just about communication. It's about collaboration. I think everything that, you know, we have with, you know, Skype and all these other things, I think the communication is pretty darn good. Even with the telephone, it's a great conversation, right? Like, but it's hard for us to collaborate on deals or ideas together or thoughts, you know, like, and work on a project or a problem together. And if, you know, I think that's what VR and AR, by sharing a space with someone, you know, putting our hands in that space, being able to manipulate the same thing or point things out to each other in that kind of natural way, that right. working together, you know, that's the thing that Skype can't do, right? And no, it can't. Google Spreadsheets, you know, trying to add collaboration, <laughs> but it's still super clunky, right? Like, yeah. I think that, that I think is where we're going to see VR and AR really do something where, you know, it's not just about communication. It's about that collaboration. Yeah, you've just had, you've just sent my mind racing to think about (laughs) how, no, it's really interesting for me just to think about how that collaboration would take place. It's a, it's a problem we'd been trying to tackle in some other businesses for a really long time, but you're right. And I was thinking, and I'm trying, I'm talking to Cisco about this, right? About the spark board, right? So how can I use Mm -hmm. that whiteboard technology that's very digitized and can save it, but you can look at it on your iPad when I'm drawing on the board here. It's very interactive and good for collaboration. But add the virtual reality aspect into that whole thing, which they haven't done yet, but they probably are considering. And now you have really powerful collaboration because, you know, we talked a little bit about telepresence, but I did it in the context of sort of family. And maybe that's just because I've lived away from my family for 30 years. But Mm -hmm. if you think about it in the context of productivity and working collaboration, just, you know, you're being in Southern California and me being in Bangkok, it would be, you know, factors easier to collaborate if there was a virtual aspect to it. Yep. No, absolutely. I mean, and so, like, what's interesting, you know, Ford has been doing this and they've proved it out. So the, they have the Ford immersive vehicle and envi- virtual environment and they've been designing cars in VR for like the past, I don't know, five, six years now. Yeah. And what's interesting is, yeah, they've been doing this on, this was before the Oculus and five. And so these were like hundred thousand dollar VR systems. Right. And it made sense for multi-million dollar cars, right? But they showed that they could save millions of dollars because of the collaboration and the efficiency and that they could go through all these virtual designs and iterate. Like, I think they said like a hundred X faster Easy. than like Easy. building the physical prototype. Yeah. And, and, and then making evaluations and adjustments there. But what's also interesting now is, okay, those are on systems that cost hundreds of thousands of dollars. Now that these systems cost thousands of dollars, sure. then these, uh, you know, same techniques and methodologies can be applied to, you know, things like designing toothbrushes or, or you know, much lower cost things, right? Um, so that could be another way where VR, AR can be mainstreamed. And, you know, NVIDIA has a really cool prototype and I think it's at open beta, uh, for collaboration in the engineering space. Right. Uh, for exactly this kind of uh, thing that we've been talking about. Uh, and it's really interesting, but even going back and, you know, like Tilt Brush, that art program that we talked about earlier, yeah. right? If it was multiplayer, that would be the ultimate whiteboard for me. Yeah. No, I right. thought the, the first thing I thought of when I was doing that was, you know, I had those two hand controllers. And I'm yeah. in a room by, you know, not by myself, with some other gentleman who was helping me sort of manipulate it because I'd never used the Vive before. And I just thought to myself, instead of multiplayer gaming, if <laughs> everybody could draw together, and that's, you know, CAD CAM or whatever they're drawing, but that do that artwork together, that would be insane. I just thought it would be insane. Yeah. Yeah. But now it's Absolutely. only one person doing it. I just thought that was really incredible, actually. Yeah. So one more thing I'll ask you, then I'll let you go, because I feel like I've taken up way too much of your time. And Vegas is probably a lot more interesting than I am, for sure. Um, but I wonder, like, you do invest outside the United States, right? Yeah. And is there, like, how do you do, do you travel out 
do you get on a plane and you travel to other regions to do it? Do you have partners that are in, you know, Asia or Europe or wherever? Or like, how do you, how do you manage that whole process? Sure. Well, I'm, we're, you know, a small fund. So it's really just my partner, Marco and I, and, um, we go out there and, and we go travel. We travel a lot, but you know, we happen to be in Silicon Valley too. So a lot of people come to us. Awesome. So we, you know, evaluate on both sides. Um, so it's just, uh, you know, a, bar, a big part of what we do too is, you know, our LP network and our partner network is really strong and we have a lot of great collaboration. And the most important thing for us, you know, this is kind of true for almost all VR and AR investors, uh, in particular, but, uh, we're never the sole investor. We always do, uh, it's too risky, right? You know, it's too risky. And then also we really do feel like, you know, it takes a village. Like the more people thinking about this problem, the better, the more support, the better it's going to be for everyone. And, you know, we think that for us, especially doing foreign investments, we always need a foreign lead from that country that understands, you know, the, the governance, you know, the business purveyance, like all of that, all of that kind of stuff. And that can also be, you know, the boots on the ground, that, that kind of support that early stage founders often need. Right. Yeah, I noticed as well when I was looking through some of your stuff that the at least the companies that you list, not the portfolio, but your partners like Gumi and Colopol Next and Yahoo Japan and even DBJ, like a lot of some of these companies, a lot of them are in Asia and in Japan in particular. I'm wondering how you maintain or how you built those relationships over time. I mean, Gumi obviously is a very famous company, Yahoo Japan, you know, it is what it is. Um, but how did you build that up? No, it, it's interesting too because. Uh, a lot of it was because I think Asia really understood the opportunities of VR and got it and, and really was wanting to understand, you know, globally too, what was going on in VR, what was going on in the West, because that's where a lot of the innovation was originating from. And, and so, you know, they were like, okay, how could we get good partners to understand that, how it's happening in Silicon Valley? And of course, you know, we are here in Silicon Valley, this is our focus. And so it was like a kind of natural, um, Partnering, but what was was really interesting too was yeah like once we got one or two partners in the region, yeah, more came out and we're like okay we're really interested we know that you know you guys are doing you know have good partners like Gumi we want to be involved as well and so I think that was you know it's, it's kind of true right like when you're thinking about regions finding regions that are excited and interested but then finding one or two anchor partners that really help kind of you know give you that social proof yeah. That, that helps get the other investors, you know, on board or excited. And, you know, I think that makes a big difference as well. Yeah, but a lot of times, you know, it, it, but it is, you know, like any kind of relationship, you know, or you, lots of meetings, lots of communication, <laughs> lots of collaboration, right. you know, figuring out to, you know, wh- where your value add, um, what, what can you do? How can you provide value that no one else can provide for them and solve problems that they have? Right. Fair enough. Look, I'll let you go. I think this has been a really fascinating conversation for me. I hope you have enjoyed it as much as I have. Um, and the other thing I hope is that we'll be able to do this again, like follow up in three, six months, whatever it is, just to find out how things are going. I really enjoyed this quite a bit, and I wanted to thank you again for your time. Oh, no, absolutely. No, thank you so much, Michael. I really appreciate what you're doing, and I'm glad to participate. And hopefully, you know, if I have a trip to Thailand, we can, you know, maybe eat some common guy in Bangkok. It's it's on me. (laughs) All right. Sounds good. Thank you. (laughs) Bye. You've been listening to Asia Tech Podcast. Find out more at ATP.show.